Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello and welcome to another fortnightly episode of the Bike Radar podcast. Um, This week we're going to be talking about mountain bike racing and how it's affected mountain bike design over the years. Um, Tom is not with us this week, so I'm in charge. I'm going to be trying to hold this show together. Uh, I'm sat here with Rob Weaver and Luke Marshall, who have done a fair bit of racing in the past uh, on the World Cup downhill scene. So (laughs) trying to get their um, perspective on racing mountain bikes and testing mountain bikes now and how they've changed. So maybe if we could start with just um, what were your kind of um, memories of racing downhill back in the day and how that compares to to bikes now and kind of what the major changes are? Well, I guess um, one of the big things has to be geometry and another one, Mm -hmm. suspension. If you look at the bikes that we're riding today, um, they're longer, slacker Mm -hmm. and lower. And generally the bikes back then, I don't know whether it was the trends or or what it was, especially in downhill, we seemed to be riding a lot smaller bikes because we thought we could maybe just chuck them around a bit more. Mm. And then the suspension, the suspension is huge. Uh, the jump from, I mean, I started with Elastomer Sprung Forks, which mm. were terrible. Uh, so what kind of era were you guys racing World Cups then? World Cup racing, I think I did my first one, Fort William 2004. Um, mm. Tempted a couple more in 2005. And then, we did a year in and then you joined me 2006, yeah. we're on the same team together. Yeah. And uh, I finished in 2007. Okay, but um, you you were racing earlier, weren't you? With, with so we started. Years. Yeah, we started. I think my first downhill race would have been '97, I think mm. it was, and then we started doing nationals '98, uh, and then yeah, kind of just progressed from there, sort of yeah. plugging away, doing bits and pieces, and then um, even in that short short amount of time, stuff changed dramatically. I think. Um, a big thing definitely for you and I, Luke, was uh, the introduction of the RockShox Boxer. You could finally buy it. Mm. We'd sort of seen it and there was, you know, there was the DHO fork for a bit before that, which you could buy, um, before that GDDHs. And then in 98, they released the Boxer, which was um, coil sprung fork. Mm. Um, Hydraulic damping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it was, yeah, a huge step. In yeah, I guess direction. before that, it was just elastomers. Yeah. To kind of control the damping and the spring in kind of one sort of simple yeah. piece of rubber. Yeah. Um, and so what kind of, 
did the boxes start with 200 mil of travel or did it kind of work up to that? It was a 151, wasn't it? Started with... Well, that was... that was so like a modern trail bike. So that was in 99, yeah. So it was available. It was on production bikes in maybe 98. And then it went on to... Yeah, it became as an aftermarket fork. I think it was 99 as the 151. So yeah, it's so six inches. Yeah, okay. Um, but that, but was, that a, was a big travel fork back then. That was, yeah, six mm, inches. A couple, yeah. of, couple of inverted forks. We went to eight inches. yeah. Yeah, but, um, but yeah, that was that was loads of travel back then. Yeah, so so in so since then, between sort of ninety eight and I guess two thousand seven, where you guys stopped racing, like what were the main sort of advances over that time? Like, uh, obviously, you already had sort of half decent suspension by ninety eight, but did that come on a lot in the next sort of ten years, mm-hmm. or is it mostly the geometry that was the big improvement? I would say also brakes. Or massive. Oh yeah. So you had hydraulic brakes, sort of from the the disc brakes came in, but not all bikes. You couldn't fit them to every bike or every fork. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think. That must have been around. Disc brakes were available from probably sort of mid nineties. Magura had one. Hope had one. Uh, Formula had them, mm-hmm. I believe. But yeah, you couldn't fit them to every bike. Mm. So even even I think um, people were making their own modifications in order to try and yeah. get adapters on the back of their bikes. Because most forks from the late nineties had mounts, but they still had the lugs to stick your V brakes on or mm. your your Magura hydraulic rim brakes. Mm. Um, so that was a big thing that changed over the years. Because I think the first boxer even had lugs on or removable lugs, maybe. Yeah, I don't know, to be honest, I can't go in that detail. Um, and then, yeah, so that that was another big step. I think things just got more consistent with suspension and more tunable, and things moved on in terms of servicing and, yeah, the ability to get stuff tuned aftermarket. We started to see suspension tuning centres cropping up, and that made a big difference because it could be that you could buy an aftermarket shock and then get it tuned to suit your bike. So that was a huge thing and something that I think, especially racing as a privateer, um, would be something you always make sure you budget for. Yeah. Because it was always a big step in the right direction in terms of bike setup is making sure your bike was totally dialed and that was the easiest way. But presumably these weren't these upgrades weren't available to consumers at the time. Like what was the discrepancy between the bikes that you guys were racing on and what you could buy at the time? Because nowadays you can more or less buy a lot of the bikes that the World Cup riders are, are racing on, whether whether it be downhill or cross-country or enduro, you can more or less buy those bikes almost off the peg. I mean, we were on stock stuff. We definitely, it, when in 2006, we had Dave Garland, who was our mechanic, and he's he's gone on to work, you know, with Kovaric. Well, he worked with Kovaric before us and then back to the CRC team. And then I think his last job was with Danny Hart. So he mm. knows his stuff with suspension, so he could tweak stuff for us. And we worked with Chris Porter for a while, doing bits and pieces with, he introduced a boxer cartridge, which was um, different to most other things at the time. So we kind of worked with him on on different tunes for that and making the forks feel better. Um, but otherwise, yeah, the stuff we were riding was pretty mm. stock. There was obviously the big difference at the time was when the, the top guys were full factory, so their bikes weren't off the shelf. Generally, they were made to fit them, or yeah. at the time, so it's you know, 
26 inch wheels they were much smaller but they were yeah built around if steve wanted his orange a certain size and that orange bike was custom built for steve okay and, and they um, had robin's wasn't custom built no. for him oh, was it not? <laughs> no no funnily enough no but the color was then yeah 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 but <laughs> pro very yeah but um i guess uh if you look back over the years you had um the rock shop black box program Mm-hmm. which John Cancellier ran. Uh, and that was just for, I think you had to be, you had to have finished the World Cup in like top five but to get on to kind of qualify for that. And that meant you'd have the full factory support from from that brand. Yeah. So those guys would be on a prototype stuff or, or sort of um, stuff that might not ever even make it out to production. And that was purely race driven yeah Um, and that that sort of stuff i guess is where we start to see that development come from yeah so so this is using races like top the cream of world cup races to develop products yes um and i guess some of them fed into mountain bikes that that consumers could buy off the shelf not all of them but um i guess uh one thing we could talk about is 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 that a good thing because um, if a top five World Cup rider is giving input to a suspension manufacturer like Fox or RockShox, does that necessarily translate into a better product for the end consumer? That's a good question. Yes. Um, it has benefits, of course. You know, these guys are looking for the best performance they can possibly have. And they're looking for tenths of seconds, hundreds of seconds. Um, so they're always trying to, I guess, in suspension, reduce friction. That's a huge one. And I don't think that matters if you're a weekend warrior or a top racer. Having best friction in your suspension forks is a, is a good thing. Mm. Um, in terms of the spring pressures and the damping systems they run, then maybe they're not so compatible. Um, I think World Cup racers generally have much harder, firmer suspension settings. Mm. They don't necessarily roll over to... Um, Riders like ourselves, as such, that need are uh, going that fast, or hitting obstacles that quickly with that much force, they perhaps don't need quite as much, um, yeah, control in their in their damping systems. But if the engineers have learned how to kind of tone it down, right? To turn, yeah, to to yeah. do this system, then they can maybe they can say tone it down for what it's good for a consumer. So I, a racer. yeah, I guess they'll get the foundations of it together, mm. so they'll know kind of how to create. A damper that can be, you know, really compliant and work over the small bumps and supportive and, you know, all the usual buzzwords. But I guess the key for them is understanding how they need to maybe alter the tune to make it Mm. more applicable for riders that are looking for a bit more comfort because the racers ultimately are looking for however long that track might be, three, four minutes or in enduro, maybe a bit longer. Yeah. But they're, you know, they're, proper athletes they're so much stronger and fitter that they are training themselves to to deal with the fact that their bike might not be very comfy Mm. if you speak to any of the the top world cup races they'll say you know on the morning of race day they'll jump on their bike to do one practice run and they say it feels horrible and it takes a while just to kind of get back into riding that bike and understanding that once they hit the speeds that they know they're capable Mm. of then the bike will work exactly how it needs to work yeah, it's set up to perform on at race pace. Yeah. Uh, it's optimized for race pace. Like like a Formula One car or a race car might feel 
awful driving at normal speeds around town. Uh, I guess it's a similar sort of idea that it's optimized for that three minute run in downhill or maybe up to 10 minute run in enduro. Yeah. And I think sort of what you touched on previously is that where, um, you know, back in the late nineties, early two thousands and stuff, a lot of those suspension units were probably not off the shelf. They were probably built mm. for the races at the time. The, you know, the chassis might have been, but the internals might have been completely yeah, stock. Yeah. Um, it feels like we're at a point now where maybe that isn't the case, where we are able to go out and buy the stuff that Brendan's riding or that's, that Dan is using. It might yeah. be tweaked significantly, but, you know, it's it's not night and day difference like it used to be. And and I and I would say it's the same with the frames, you know, the the bike that Nico was racing on, I can't imagine he was going to go, okay, you know, I'm happy to to ride the one bike for an entire year because, you know, he used that sun at the time, steel back end that would always, you know, anyone that we knew that had them were always getting them rewelded because yeah. they weren't designed to be ultra durable bikes that could last season after season. They were race bikes. Yeah. And Nico Villa, we should explain, 10 times world champion, yeah. uh, in arguably the most successful or one of the most successful World Cup riders of all time. He was also really famous for um, experimenting with bike setup, experimenting with, with flex, with spoke tension, with all sorts of things. Back in the day, he was like um, a kind of real tech guy. Yeah. Um, so his bikes would change from race to race, wouldn't they? And they maybe wouldn't be designed to to last a whole season even. So maybe so in those days, you know, the bikes that were winning the world championships were probably nothing like the bikes that you could buy. Is that fair to say? I think so, yeah. Whereas I, mean, this... I think nowadays, like, um, a lot of the bikes that um, that the pros are running, you could, you could, you could buy something pretty similar off the, off, the, off the shelf or by changing a few parts, you could get something almost identical now i would have thought um and you can buy pretty much close to a lot of pro bikes see there's changes with inside whatever is the suspension that is mm. would need fettling but i think you can buy quite a few brands nowadays are positively pushing this is a stock frame our racers are yeah. riding yeah. yeah it's a usp for those guys right it's been able to sell the world champs bike or the last world cup winner's bike mm. is a really positive thing yeah, for those guys. And as well as that, I guess it, people then sort of start buying into the brand and it won't just be those um, top tier headline bikes, especially downhill, which is relatively niche. They won't just be looking to buy those bikes. They'll get more involved with, you know, the trail bikes and stuff like that. And I think that's always going to be a an incentive for the brands to make sure they can market those bikes really well because as an offshoot they generally sell their trail bikes mm. off the back won't just be downhill yeah and now with enduro racing you can you can race a bike that a lot of consumers are interested in buying uh, that same bike or a similar bike whereas with downhill like the market for people buying downhill bikes is relatively small whereas with enduro that's something that you can translate much more directly into what people tend to buy i suppose so um, there's much more of an incentive for companies to kind of keep the race bikes at least visually similar to the bikes you can buy in a in a shop or on a website. And and enduro kind of highlights the durability side of things a little more, I think. Yeah, totally. Um, 
they're not rolling into the pits after every single run and changing, you know, potentially wheels and, well, back ends of bikes, all sorts of stuff that downhillers might be able to do mm. if they've got the support, that is. Whereas, yeah, those guys are potentially spending an entire weekend making sure that they're, they can get their bike, they can manage their bike through some arguably hellishly brutal stages mm. and it comes out the other end in one piece. And if they can't do that, obviously, if they change anything, there's penalties to be had and, and things like that. So, again, it feels like the racing's influence stuff, but equally what the consumers need and want is the durability, which kind of then nicely comes into that enduro side where that's what they need as well. I suppose the question, though, is that if... if um Bikes you can buy are getting more and more similar to race bikes. Is that necessarily a good thing? Because we talked earlier about how um, the the demands of racing are very different to what punters like us uh, want on a bike. And I think in the past we have said that, you know, um, certain uh, fork dampers have been pretty firm, even when fully open. And, you know, for someone like me, who's a reasonable rider, but certainly not racer, you know, I'm, I'm running a lot of forks almost fully open on compression. So it seems like the range is really not necessarily tailored to the average consumer in, in certain products and certain bikes. Yeah. I'm, I'm not fully convinced that everyone who goes to the bike park on the weekend or the trail centre needs to ride the same bike as Richie Rude or Martin Mays are riding. Yeah. Um, those top pros are at such a different level to what any of us ride. I'm not sure it always makes sense to have exactly the same stuff that they do. Um, sure, there are advantages in some things. Tires, for example, it doesn't matter really. If you've got good tires, you're going to enjoy your time more. I think brakes makes example. a big difference. Yeah, yeah. makes a big difference. Um, people are going to feel more comfortable if their brakes are working properly. But things like suspension setup and even potentially geometry, I don't think uh, the Weekend Warrior downhill rider needs a 62 and a half degree head angle, for example. I might be wrong and I say these are just my opinions, but maybe a 64 degree head angle is better for someone who's, you know, three quarters the pace, half the pace of the top guys. Those two degrees might make the bike just a little bit more easier to turn, a little bit more friendly and like comfort of that rider who isn't hammering it as, as fast as the World Cup guys are. I guess the racing is a really good proving ground and they can kind of, the engineers and the designers and stuff can kind of put stuff out to those those top guys and see how it holds up, see how it performs and get feedback from those guys who have been at the top or, you know, they know how to push everything to its limit. They probably have, I guess, well, some of them, like you've mentioned, Nico and Fabian and a lot of those guys are able to dissect it and understand what's going on, then that'll go back to the engineers. And it's, I guess it's as long as it's kind of, as we mentioned before, as long as they're able to then either put it under some regular riders in order to, you know, get more feedback and, and kind of meet somewhere in the middle, yeah. maybe tone it down a little bit. The, see, that's what I wonder if some companies are doing enough of that. Okay. Because, um, for example, the old 36 RC2 damper mm. was really firm if you put it in the middle of the of the settings so almost unusable right yeah i for one was running it pretty much fully open all the time yeah um and i'm not a bad rider i'm probably not on the lower end of the bell curve i'm probably somewhere near the middle so that doesn't seem to to check out and i wonder if if they've been using 
leaning too heavily on pro riders because they can bang out consistent runs and some of them can really tell you what's going on. Um, so they're kind of leaning on those guys, but what they want from a fork or a shock or maybe from geometry, as you were saying, is different, quite different from what punters want. Um, and so I, yeah. I, I wonder if, if, if that kind of logic is leading the industry astray a little bit in certain areas. I think if you talk to some brands, they're pretty switched on with how they approach it because, I mean, brakes are a good example, I'd say, because stick a downheller on a set of brakes and they're not really dragging them. Mm. They're using them in a really short amount of time, but they're using them really heavily. Yeah. Um, so they might not feel everything that you or I might feel riding the same track. We might be pottering down it, absolutely terrified, dragging the brakes solidly for four or five minutes. So we could even, you know, we could affect the brake pads, we could, you know, mm. cook the brakes, we could, you know, destroy them. Whereas they might come back with like, yep, yeah, totally fine, powerful enough, that'll do me. Yeah. So I guess it's when those brands are able to ensure that they're getting feedback from both sides of the, you know, from both sides of the spectrum. Yeah, I think that's key, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think with suspension, we're also seeing increased adjustability. So now that um, even downhill bikes and, and enduro bikes are quite largely going to air springs. Um, there's some uh, coil is kind of having a comeback in certain areas, but generally speaking, forks in particular are, are air sprung and there's much more adjust, adjustability in the dampers. You don't have to take them apart and have them tuned by a service center. You can adjust a lot of the parameters uh, externally with, with, the, uh, with the adjustment. So I guess there's, there's a lot of scope to have a completely different setup with the same product now whereas i guess in the old days it was more uh more fit and forget there was less external adjustments I, so, yeah if you wanted to make adjustments you needed to know the right person basically mm. to open things up and do the right things yeah pretty much whereas now yeah we can go off and do loads of adjust the fiddling and hmm. do a lot of it ourselves yeah but kind of only if you know what you're doing because there's yes yeah, they're like with um. There's more chance to make it bad, hey, than to get yeah, it good. Yeah, yeah, totally. Especially with like clicks, only one of those or two of those might be right. Yeah, it's a narrow window. Seventeen, yeah. eighteen might be bad for you. And yeah, now a lot of dampers have like four different adjustments for the damper, plus the pressure and the air spring, plus volume spaces. That's like six different things to adjust. Like that, that's a lot to lot to get your head around. Good weeks testing. Yes, <laughs> yeah, totally. So yeah, I guess the point is there's, there's much more bandwidth now with bikes. They're, they're much more adjustable, but that means that finding the right ballpark is is maybe a bit harder. Um, but I guess they have the scope to to be adjusted from top rider like Richie Rude all the way down to you know more entry level rider in theory. Yeah. But then I guess the trade off with having such wide bandwidth is it's harder to find your optimum setting yeah um, and i mean i guess as well from the racing side of it where bikes have been created to be you know more stable and safer and easier to ride fast mm. that trickling into the mainstream is no bad thing mm. i think previously especially at the lower end of the market where we saw more um you know entry-level bikes especially where I think a lot of designers would maybe worry that they were going, they didn't want to go too extreme 
mm. and put those angles in that the pros use because they thought, well, they're not going to be able to handle it and still make it more upright and safer and easier to ride. Where they're starting to uh, more maybe towards that um, more, you know, lower, longer slacker mm. end of the spectrum, it means that it's, it's actually proving quite beneficial, I think. So people that don't have the budget can still get a bike that's more than capable, if that makes sense. Yeah, because nowadays you can buy a pretty long slack, stable bike that is not necessarily that expensive. So you yeah, can, and it you just can, wouldn't have existed five, ten years ago. Yeah, yeah. Or more recently, it's only been certain brands like Mondraker or Geometron who have been pushing that really long geometry. Yeah, but now it's more mainstream, so it's more affordable. Like the the Caliber Century that we've tested recently is super stable, super long, mm. but like two grand. So you know anyone can benefit or experience at least that geometry if they want. And, and even in hardtails, brands oh, yeah. like Saracen and those guys, you know, they're a relatively sort of budget conscious, fairly mainstream brand. Yet they've got some pretty, I wouldn't say extreme, but definitely yeah. would have been considered towards, extreme yeah years. totally on their on their well-priced hardtails now yeah i think there's a really interesting question as to who that's that stable geometry benefits the most because on the one hand it's been traditionally seen as you said that like that's for racing you know that stable super slack geometry is for racing but i wonder if it you could also argue i think that it benefits the the entry-level rider more because it's safer you more, feel more stable and secure in the bike. You're less likely to go over the bars. Um, so having that safer geometry is, is arguably just as beneficial for them. Whereas, whereas top, top riders who have the, the strength to hold on to a shorter, less stable bike, um, who maybe are just propping their fork up more to, to make it slacker and to make it sit up higher, um, were able to ride those shorter bikes really, really well. Like if you... If you look nowadays, Richie Rood is is having amazing success on that Yeti SB150, which is still on the slacker, longer, more stable end of the spectrum. Whereas a few years ago, he was also going really fast on on like the SB uh, SB6 or the SB5, which were even for the time were quite conservative. Mm. Um, so I wonder if if maybe the opposite is the case that the top end top riders have the strength and the technique and the and the bravery to ride a shorter, less stable bike, whereas a, a more entry-level rider maybe has more to benefit from the safer, more stable riding. I think those guys as well are able to adapt. Yeah. And, yeah. and more easily than your average rider. They can jump on a bike and they'll be able to ride around any of the issues Yeah, and still make the most of... It not, won't necessarily be faster but they'd be able to adapt and get close to maybe what they were doing yeah. previously. But again, I think all the points are valid, right? So yeah, you might be able to stick your average downhill rider on a super extreme, you know, slacked out 61, 62 degree downhill bike. They might struggle, but equally go too far the other way, make it too conservative and they might feel a bit nervous. And yeah, um, so it's kind of... A happy medium to find, isn't there? But it's a lot of back and forth, I guess. Yeah. If that's the way we kind of want to, I don't know, conclude this in the sense that the 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 tech from racing certainly does influence a lot of what we see in the shops mm. and online. 
But again, it's that sort of making sure that before it goes out on sale to punters, that it has been, there has been that back and forth. They have found that middle ground, that it isn't so extreme that it's going to be almost impossible to ride for more than three minutes or, Mm. you know, but that equally it isn't so subdued and dull that it's not going to be any fun and feels kind of nervous to ride, you know. Mm. So I guess, yeah, you could sort of go both ways, positive and and, and negative in some ways. And on the whole, I reckon it's helped. Okay. What about you, Luke? Yeah, I reckon obviously racing development is where each of the manufacturers are really putting their resources into designing new products and testing new products. And at the end of the day, those products then trickle down to lower price points and, and then are beneficial to the consumers. Um, whether that is ending in, t- in tires and brakes and suspension in frame design and geometry. Um, yeah, I think it's massively influenced it. I think it's overall for a benefit. Again, you, you can argue both ways that do we need to be racing Amory Pirion's downhill bike? Does a consumer need to go in and buy that bike? You can look at it both ways. One, yes, it's going to provide a nice, stable, I won't say comfortable ride because his forks and shot won't be comfortable, but a stable platform. But you could adjust it to make it comfortable. But you could adjust you know, the bike, yeah. With um, an air sprung fork and then, highly adjustable yeah, damper. Is, is the everyday weekend downhill are going to be able to get the most of that geometry? You don't know if you know what I mean. And so, But would a, would a, I guess the question is, would an everyday consumer be better off on a bike that hadn't been influenced by racing over the past two decades or whatever? Yeah. yeah. I mean, me and Robin can tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) If you give me my choice of the bike now or the bike I had 15 years ago, I'd know which one I'd take. Yeah. The old one, right? The old one, yeah. (laughs) Of course, yeah. Yeah, it's more fun, more (laughs) flickable. Exactly. Flicks you over the handlebars. Dangerous. (laughs) Dangerous, yeah. 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 And I mean, the other thing is that you could buy a bike off the shelf or from the internet for not a ridiculous amount of money, which I would have thought... Uh, it'd be interesting to get your perspective on this, but I would have thought would massively outperform any World Cup highly tuned bike of 10, 20 years ago. I would have thought like, for example, if you look at like the new Canyon Sender, which I tested recently, the the alloy one, it's like 2,600 pounds. You get like boxer uh, fork with a charger damper. You get pretty good suspension. You get really good tires. You get 650 wheels. You get really good brakes. I mean, I would have thought that if you compared that to any bike from mid two thousands, you'd be. Could you could you put a uh, new GT Fury twenty nine er against the GTI Drive from the two thousands? You know what I mean? And yeah, and see which one was faster sure or more that, fun the, to ride. More fun it. to ride. Yeah. Well, if you're down to bike, yeah, fast is maybe the the ultimate goal mm. for people who always say take it racing. But um, yeah, definitely the new bike is going to be. A, a off the shelf new bike is probably going to be faster than Steve Pete's iDrive from and arguably 2000. and arguably maybe even faster than the Honda which you couldn't buy maybe or Nico's I mean you could buy the Sun you could buy the Radical Plus bikes yeah but the team at that point were were pretty much just on fully custom bikes yeah with fully custom suspension that you couldn't go out and buy so, I mean that would be the That'd be the interesting thing, pitting one of those totally fully factory bikes that there was no hope in ever buying. Yeah. Against something from something totally mundane like 
bottom entry level specialized yeah, canyon. Yeah, just to see, just to see. My money would so be on the specializer canyon. <laughs> it probably would. Interesting <laughs> to see how much difference there is between an off-the-shelf common style supreme and Amory's race bike. To see how fast he could take both of those down the hill. Wonder what time difference yeah. it would be. Hmm. Wonder yeah. how much slower he would if he's be. He's only on given that. a shock pump. <laughs> yeah, you're a shock pump. His mechanic got a shock pump. Yeah, yeah. Just tell him what the clickers do and <laughs> Yeah, maybe something to look into in future. Yeah. Something. But yeah, I think racing's only been positive for uh, for everyone, really. And I think it still will be in the future. I think that's where you you see all the development come from and trickles down to the consumers at the end. Mm. Yeah. So that's our thoughts on racing and how it's influenced bikes. Uh, let us know in the comments uh, what you think. And if you have any ideas for future podcasts, uh, please do let us know either in the comments or you can contact us on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, And see you next time for another podcast. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com.